Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode of That Dan Band Show is brought to you by the Captain U Recruiting Platform. Powered by Stack Sports. Captain U is breaking into the band space to offer support to high school students who are looking to perform in band at the collegiate level. With over 10 years in the recruiting industry and over 3 million student profiles created over the years, Captain U has long been a leader in athlete advocacy and support. Now it's time to provide that same support to band performers. Captain U creates a direct line of communication between musicians and college band directors. With the LinkedIn style profile, performers can put their best foot forward with searchable criteria like their position, academic info and test scores, audition videos, director recommendations, and potential majors. Performers can directly message college directors to learn about scholarship opportunities, a university's academic strengths, and ultimately place themselves at the right institution. If you are a high school band student looking to perform at the next level, go to captainu.com and create a free profile today. It takes less than five minutes and will save you time and money. And for a limited time, we are offering performers 50% off an upgraded profile by using the promo code TDBS21. That's right, 50% off an upgraded profile on captainu.com by using the code TDBS21 at checkout. Sign up on Captain U, gain exposure, and get recruited. Powered by Stack Sports. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. This is That Dan Band Show. We are available on Spotify, Apple, everywhere that you listen to podcasts. Really happy to be back. We've had a slew, a string, a gaggle of awesome guests and this one is no different um as i've noted in the past always looking for perspectives that are unique you know i come from a very distinct marching background i'm a snare drummer that's that's my entry into the percussion world um so it's so great to chat with people who have just a different background maybe different philosophies and and overall something different than what i have to offer so that not only can i learn something but all of you can as well. So I am very, very pleased to welcome Jessica Williams. Jessica, how are we doing today? I'm doing good. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be a part of this this show. And it's awesome. I hear you've been putting out some good things too. <laughs> That's great. Uh, have you done any podcast interviews before? I've done one with uh, Pete Zambito. I don't know him. Who is that? Uh, he's a percussionist and he, you know, he kind of goes around and, uh, kind of does the same thing you, but he kind of delves into like how people's doing, um, what, what, you know, what they do in their, uh, past life or their past time and things like that. But, you know, also like their background and their philosophy and why are they going to performing, why are they going to teaching and such that. Gotcha. Awesome. That, that sounds great. So you're, you're used to doing this. So, uh, before we just kick off, um, tell us a little bit about, your background, you know, how you got into percussion and sort of how you moved up through the ranks to the point that you're doing it professionally. Um, just talk to us a little bit about your bio. Uh, yeah. So, um, actually I started out, uh, on piano. That's my first instrument. Um, I'm from Tennessee and my parents put my brother in piano first. And then, uh, a year later they put me in there. It was like, you know, we're going to be gas efficient instead of dropping this kid off at home and then going to go pick this one up. <laughs> we're going to drop both of y'all off at the, at the school and, and whatnot. So, uh, I started piano when I was five years old and, um, around sixth grade is when I started band. I actually wanted to play saxophone, 
because I was like, okay, this is cool. It's shiny. It sounds cool on my dad's records. I want to play saxophone. I could not make a sound to save my life. Um, so <laughs> at the end of class, I went back in the back and there was all this percussion. I was like, oh, this is something shiny. It's silver. It looks like a piano. And I asked my teacher, I was like, Mr. Hannon, what's this? And he was like, it's a bell set. I was like, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, bell set, piano, cool. Since I can play the piano, can I play the bells? He was like, yeah. So I started off on bells in sixth grade. Did not touch any other instrument for real, for real until 10th grade. I might have played like a cymbal here or, you know, um, a crash cymbal, uh, crash cymbal there. But I was mostly on keyboards until 10th grade. And my teacher, mm -hmm. Mr. Wood, was like, you're going to play snare drum. And I was like, I don't want to. I hate it. I don't want to. And eventually I got better at it. I learned how to play four mallets in 11th grade. And up until then, I wanted to be a zoologist. Um, I wanted to, I had a whole binder full of animals. And when I learned how to play four mallets, I asked my teacher, I was like, can I go to school for education and performance? He was like, yeah. So I went off to college. I went to Alabama State University and I got my mm -hmm. bachelor's in music ed. And I went to University of Florida and got my master's in music performance. And I just submitted my dissertation for my doctorate at the University of Memphis. So, yeah, I'm waiting to, to hear back for that. And I got to do my lecture recital soon and I got to do my defense soon. So I'm just waiting to hear back from that. And uh, I'm actually teaching at my alma mater, I'm teaching at Alabama State. And I'm adjunct at Huntington College mm -hmm. at the moment, too. So that's kind of how I got from this little girl with two front missing teeth playing piano to teaching collegially and being a, uh, being seen as a you know pretty good. Well, they say I'm a pretty good educator, but we'll see. <laughs> It's uh, one of those things where there's no really like n way to know when it's going well or not. It's so odd, especially with percussion, because everyone just has such a different like pace and how they they learn. So it's it's very like evolving. I feel like there some people I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've heard people like, yeah, I, I figured out how to teach high school or I have figured out how to teach at this level. But doesn't really work like that. It's like this thing. And, and students are always changing too. Um, but I want to just go back and ask because, you know, there's just, there's not a lot of, of women in the percussion world. Like just to start off. And I had a great conversation um, with another guest um, who, who was, uh, you know, a woman percussionist. I don't know the right way to say that. So I apologize if that sounds terrible, but the word female is also kind of weird. So, um, but it's just it's just different because, you know, you look around and it seems like people get siphoned off into specific areas kind of based on their identity and who they are. And it feels like if you're like this, go over here. If you're like this, go over here. And for you, it's like, no, like not really going to go in this direction. It seems like you kind of were you were focused in the way that you were going to move from piano into this different area like what was that process like? Like, did you feel external resistance to becoming the person you are to becoming, you know, a doctor in percussion? Did it feel like you were supported? Like, give me some examples of sort of how, how did that go from when you were growing up? Um, I had a lot of support when I was younger. Um, nobody really said, no, you can't, you can't do this. Um, I guess I was one of the, the lucky ones where whatever you put your mind to, you can, you can do it. And I honestly did not think that I would get this far with it. Um, when my undergrad came, I, I'm even now, I'm still very humble. You know, people are just like, you're amazing. You should keep pushing it and things like that. So I had a really, really, really big support group. I didn't really face any resistance. It is kind of hard for women percussionists because um, especially black women percussionists is very hard for us as well, because not only are we fighting our male counterparts, um, we're fighting other races as well. And it's it's come to seen as I'm not going to lie, it's kind of it's kind of ruled by a white dom uh, white males. So yep. it's refreshing to see people who look like me up there. And I guess one of the reasons why I really, really, really wanted to stick with it and people were pushing me to be the percussionist and the person that I am is because I wanted to be a role model. I wanted to be that person that they look up to and be like, this person looks just like me. And I think I can do it because she's doing it. And I do have a person like that, uh, Dr. Jillian Baxter, 
she's uh, at the other ASU at Albany State University. Mm-hmm. And she got her doctorate. And I was like, I want to be just like her. I want to get my doctorate too. So I wanted to create this, this, I guess this ball rolling of more people, more women, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their backgrounds or whatnot, more humans getting involved in percussion and just diversifying it. So I think, I think what got me here was just the big support group that I had and I didn't have any resistance. That's great. I love what you said just about serving as an example, because if you don't, then no one will. It's like, it is for you and the next generation of individuals to become that. So I, I feel like putting that on your own shoulders can be a source of like pressure, but it can also be a source of inspiration. And I think that's a really, honestly, just a, a super positive way to, to position yourself. Um, you were talking about the, your dad's music and having a lot of saxophones, which makes me, you know, guess that there was a lot of jazz being played and listened to. But talk to me about the type of music that you were listening to, whether it was as, as a child or coming up through the various institutions that you're educated at that like inspired you, that crafted your ear and your taste. Yeah. So my father was, uh, he was a DJ when I was younger. Uh, I think actually before I was even born, he was a DJ, but he had a lot of records uh, left over from his, his younger days, as he liked to say. And um, he would be playing uh, Al Green, Sam Cooke, a lot of Motown, but that doesn't mean, you know, I start, you know, Kenny G, I've heard uh, Duke Ellington, Miles Davis. I heard that a lot growing up. And it was kind of a father daughter bonding time on Saturdays because he would um, play his records. He would go and he would find a specific record. And I would know it's time for me to get up so I can clean the house because he's been playing his records. So it was kind of <laughs> like, it was kind of like that. So like yeah. listening to all of that. And my dad sung a lot when he's going, he still sings too. Um, he sung a lot uh, when, uh, when he, uh, when I was growing up, my mom sung in the choir. My brother was a big instra- uh, inspiration too. Um, he was the person that learned more by rote. As in, you see what I'm doing, uh, do what I'm doing. And I learned by note. And he was a big inspiration. He still is a big inspiration because he's a music engineer right now. So those kind of like the influences of growing up and, and whatnot. And then, you know, I was classically trained. And so I didn't hear a lot of classical music growing up. I heard a lot of <laughs> jazz, R&B, not a lot of hip hop. Um, I do listen to hip hop now, but um, I when I got into the classical realm, I was like, okay, this is kind of cool. You know, I liked it. It kind of calmed me down and I wanted to, I wanted to explore that more. So as a child, I sought, I sought out like Bach and Beethoven and Chopin and Berlioz and Tchaikovsky. You know, I think my favorite piece is uh, symphony number four in E minor, the Pasacaglia by Johannes Brahms. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that's kind of how, like how I was growing up. Awesome. Yeah. I, I feel like jazz music's really special. I think for percussionists, um, a lot of times, especially you know in my background, I I'm heavily in the marching world, and structure is really important. Um, you know, everything we do, how we rehearse, the way the music is written, um, something about it is very like this. You know, not that the music isn't musical; it can be, and a lot of people are really breaking boundaries with their composition, but. Um, when I think about percussion, it's it's heavily structured and thinking about um, the role percussion plays in jazz music, it's so open. I love how, and just like, you know, listeners don't necessarily know, but you know, when you read a jazz chart down, all it has are like the hits of the band, right? Like you have those, those major points you want to hit from a rhythmic standpoint. And then there's like the style, like this is swung or this is bossa nova or this is the clave we're playing in. But it's not like the part is actually like written on the staff. Whereas like in drumline, it's literally like every sticking is written out. Every single accent is written out. All the dynamics, it's like so detailed across the way. So I feel like jazz offers a different entry point into how we think about percussion and how we express ourselves through the percussion. When I think about classical music, and I'm glad you bring that up because that's what, when I think about college and all the things you do from teaching and just learning, that's like where my head goes. What did you play like the most? What was presented to you when you were in your undergrad and graduate degrees? Was it heavily classical? Were you playing jazz vibes? Were you like getting to explore um, world music? Like what did that look like? 
Yeah. So in my undergrad, it was mostly um, wind band music, but there were transcriptions of orchestral music as well, such as we played uh, Shostakovich uh, Symphony Number no. Five, the finale. Um, we played uh, Tchaikovsky's Symphony Number no. Four finale. Um, but we also did play like some more contemporary thing like uh, to Kelly. We played uh, his Vesuvius. We played uh, October by Eric Ritiker. So it was it was a lot of classical and contemporary wind band literature. Uh, we also played a uh, uh, Jupiter by Gustav Horst. So yeah, I think that was my favorite. But it was it was a band uh, edition. So we didn't have the, the two timpani, the two timpani players. But um, that was what mostly what I was exposed to. And in percussion ensemble, you know, I was exposed to chamber playing, you know, learning to move and breathe with the people around you and not having to rely on a conductor because there's so many more people you look at each other and you vibe off of each other. I didn't really get a lot of jazz. That's one thing that I wish I, I had explored a lot more because I was taught a lot by note. So I'm very metric with things. So I'm yeah. starting to get more into to jazz now. Um, but we'll talk about that here in a second in my, in my uh, grad school. I uh, also got a chance to play in an orchestra. So I got a chance to actually play like the Moldau um, by uh, Smetana. I actually got a chance to play um, Festive Overture and 1812 Overture and actually do these ballets. Like we played, uh, what did we do? The Verdi Requiem. We did that one. Like I, I think I was called the bass drummer from hell because I really smacked <laughs> the bass drum in that piece. And um so like I got exposed to a lot more actual orchestral playing, like Carmen Sweet by Bizet, um, The Afternoon on the Farm by Debussy, and then also really like yes. like really cool contemporary music. We played what did we play? We played uh, Traveler by Maslanka. We played In the Evening Stillness by Schwantner, and that was programmed on the same concert, and that was a lot of percussion. It was a whole studio on the stage. And then uh, what, what was the other one? Uh, Ecstatic Waters by Steve Bryant is actually for uh, wind ensemble and electronic electronics. So that was actually pretty cool. And we did also have contemporary chamber players, which was an on, a chamber ensemble that plays like music that's being written at like now. So some of the yeah. some of the uh, uh, co composition students would present their things. So I did get a chance to do some kind of improv. But I'm just now getting into it because my uh, dissertation is actually on Andy Akio and I have a still pan. So I'm trying to get more into into doing that. Wow. You named so many different styles um, and it's great and so cool how they, you know, intersect with some of the things that I do. You know, I played Luxa Rumke by Eric Whitaker when I marched uh, Rhythm X, which is an indoor drum line. Um, and I actually met Andy Akio. Um, we taught his music, the tune No One to No One, which I'm sure you're aware of because it's heavily steel pan infused, right? That's like the lead thing. That super cool syncopated five. Yeah, like just so special and unique. And uh, so we played that at Carolina Crown in 2017 for our percussion feature. And he actually, Andy Akio marched drum corps. Um, he marched at the cadets and Carolina crown where I teach now he was a bass drummer and he was a UMass student. So my, you know, percussion director at uh, crown, Tom Hannum, he taught Andy Akiho. So Andy came in and like checked it out. He didn't teach or like clinic or anything, but he came in and he was like the most chill. Like he just gave off the energy that you give off, which is just like, cool. Like he wasn't this dude. He wasn't a celebrity, even though he is a celebrity in, in our world. Um, so it's so cool how this, this music is so fundamental because like percussion is percussion. Even if you are a, a concert timpani player or if you're a triangle player, core concepts come across and they just relate to so much of what we do. Even if we have different backgrounds, it like tethers us all together. Um, so what, what are you teaching when, you, when now that you kind of have the range, you know, you said, you know, I'm listening to hip hop. I'm listening to, or, you know, I wish I had done more jazz and there's like so much stuff outside that sort of conventional literary canon. I would, I would call it, um, you know, the things that you have to play, like you have to play impressionist music, you have to play German expressionism, you have to play all these kind of fundamental things. But are you like, now that you're in the driver's seat, are you like, Hey, let's look at this artist. Let's look at this rapper and what they're doing percussively or this producer. Like what's your take on that? What's your sort of approach now that you are the educator? 
Yeah. So um, I do teach a lot about the fundamentals. You know, I try to let them know who are the the I guess the mainstays, the the people that you need to know about in the percussion world, you know, like Nexus Percussion, Ivan Chavino, Michael Burek, you know, those really those people who've been putting out music for a good while. But you know, introduce them to to different unconventional things, such as um, I do have two students that played the recitals last semester. Two of their pieces were snare drum with electronics. They had never been exposed yeah. to anything like that before. You know, actually playing with uh, and and a soundscape or playing with anybody in general outside of piano, if they had that. So I also try to have them pave their own way. I'd be like, y'all like hip hop, right? They're like, yeah, we like this one. We like Travis Scott. We like this person and whatnot. And I'd be like, okay. <laughs> you got like classical music, like, oh, it's okay. And whatnot. Okay. Well, if you listen to this part person, you know, they're just, you know, taking Bach. They're taking, you know, Pachelbel's Canon and D. They're taking this and they're putting it into their music. Like, Oh, I hear it now. I was like, yeah, you hear it now. Okay, now here's a jig. I want you to play this and I want you to listen to the harmony and I want you to come up with like some sort of backbeat to go with it. You know, download Audacity. It's free. Go on there. You know, people always got free like stem tracks you can download. Come up with things like that. I introduced like I introduced uh I opened the floodgate when I introduced them to Ivan Chavino. It's like we've done, they put three on one program. So I was like, all right, we're done with Chavino. This is a little bit, a little too heavy. But, um, yeah. you know, I, I introduced to them to that, but I also stressed the fundamentals of, of percussion. Like you need to know timpani, you need to know snare drum, you need to know mallets, but I need you to take what you like and fuse it with what you're doing. Because then you'll actually have a reason to wake up in the morning outside of, okay, I got to go play Anthony Cerrone now. So take Anthony Cerrone and play it with your music. So that's what I do. I sometimes will like, all right, what's, what's who you listening to today? Okay, you listening to him? Okay. You listen to her? I pop the music on. I'd be like, all right, you feel that's in 4-4? Yeah. All right, so now we're going to play this Mitchell Peters exercise along with it because it's in 4-4. And it gives them a reason to practice because now they're doing something that they love while listening to music that they love too. I love that. And I've been so obsessive about metronomes in the last couple of years. Um, It's funny, like if you watch really the average group, their average, you know, drum core or like marching percussion group, the metronome is literally louder than the group playing at, two or three F's it's, it's this, it has really annoyed me. Like, especially recently I kind of woke up to, it was like, I can hear the Met more than I can hear the, the instrumentalists that are actually the tempo source. So, so one, the thing to do is turn the Met down. So only the people that are meant to hear the metronome are hearing it. Um, and that's obviously, you know, in a concert setting, I'm sure y'all use metronomes sparingly or in like a different way. For us, we're so like used to just like throw the mat on it. It's it's the loudest thing. It's louder than the the tr- full brass line, you know. So for me, it's turning that down and actually training them to listen to the voices that are leading the charge in terms of tempo and in terms of dynamic. And then I've been doing a lot of the same things. It's it's harder to drum to music in a drum line setting because of the volume, obviously. But I've been doing a lot of visual work with the groups I work with. Some music that's popular right now. You know, Travis Scott is a great example and there's musical complexity all over the place, but it doesn't mean that that's the main thing. I think with some classical music, like the complexity is the only thing that it's about. It's just how confusing can this metric idea float over these four beats? It's like, it doesn't, it doesn't have you feeling anything. It's like literally just like an analytical idea. So like, I love this idea of like introducing something that's more relatable to this very high intellectual thing that we do so that we can, I I think to your earlier point is like, give the students a little morsel of their real life, right? It's like, if you hear CLB on the radio, maybe we should play with that. And we should like understand like what Drake's producer is doing from a percussive standpoint. That's like really, really special um, because there's like so much of that. Um, So did you feel like that was, that was offered to you when you were coming up. I mean, obviously we're in, so I feel like in the last three years, four years, there's been such an awakening of like 
hey, like canons and like the Euro canon and the Enlightenment, like, and it's not really the last four years, it's like literally last 30 years, at least in academia. But like popularly, I feel like that is known now. It's like if all you do is teach Beethoven, you're like failing your students. Is that what you experienced? You feel like people were trying to ask you what type of music you were trying to bring to your experience as a as a uh, student or not really? I really didn't get that uh, that guidance as when I was younger. Um, I think the only time that I actually got exposed to any music that I was like listening to was in marching band. You know, I come from Alabama State and HBCU yeah. show style. So we're out there playing, you know, we're out there playing like Love a Girl by Tina Marie. We're out there playing like Fancy Girl. We're out there playing, you know, like I think they uh, Leave the Door Open. They just did that by Silk Sonic. So like we're we're out there playing like that kind of music. And, you know, that's why I like enjoyed marching band because I was like, okay, I get to hear my music, CeeLo Green. I get to I get to hear this one, you know, Rihanna, you know. And then I go to music history and it's like, all right, here's Clementi. I'm like, who? <laughs> who is that? You know, Monteverdi, you know. Yeah, yeah, like as a percussionist, we really don't get exposed to music that's about us until even then it's romantic era. Cause up until then it's like boom crash ding. Um, and five one with the, with Tiffany, very very heavy on the strings and the and the wind and the winds, and it's just like we're there to provide color and emphasis. You know that's why I tell them I was like, we Tiffany came in the Baroque area, and the most famous Baroque piece is Handel's Messiah. You know, da 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 da. Even the trumpets didn't have anything until then, so I didn't pay attention until oh Berlioz, okay. Oh, Brahms. Oh, Smith. Okay. Now I'm paying, now I'm awake because you're talking, uh, you're talking my language. You're talking broom crash, jingle dingle and, and not, you know, Arco and Pizzicato. Like, I'm like, okay, cool. So I got exposed to a lot of classical and vocal and is, it was kind of boring. So when, as I got older, and started being more into like wind bands and stuff. I started to see more music that's geared towards me. And I saw that, that little disconnect between percussionists of today and the music of yesterday. And I wanted them to like still play the music that you're playing, but connect it to what you're feeling now. Like if you're heavy on R&B, okay, come up with the R&B beat and put it to this, this prelude that I just given you. Like that's why I exposed them to like, uh, who is it? The Piano Guys. They did uh, Rockabell's Canon and they did, uh, what was the other one? I just, I just said it, uh, Prelude and uh, uh, <laughs> Bach Prelude number one, Cello Suite. They did that and it was like, oh, this is kind of cool. I was like, yeah. So like I'm downloading that music and I'm arranging it and I'm putting drum set to it and I'm putting it on mallets. So not only are they learning their classical music, but they're enjoying it and it can stick to them. First of all, you are an encyclopedia, so if you ever fumble over any pieces, don't worry because you're you're way over and around my head, so no worries about that. <laughs> are you looking for a high quality apparel made exclusively for the marching arts? That Dan Band Show is brought to you by Lot Riot Apparel. Lot Riot was founded by a drum corps alumni with a mission to create the premier apparel brand in the marching arts. And he definitely accomplished that goal. There's no other brand out there like Lot Riot. No matter what band event you go to, you will see Lot Riot clothing being worn by members, fans, and instructors alike. It is literally everywhere. Lot Riot is the brand that bonds the marching arts community together. They have a passion for band and have a real stake in their customers and the activity. With Lot Riot, you're part of a greater whole, a group of friends, a community. I love Lot Riot because they draw on a minimalistic streetwear aesthetic and use high quality materials to create cool, comfortable clothing. Their brand fits my personal style super well, which is why I am proud to have Lot Riot as a personal sponsor, as well as a sponsor of this podcast. Lot Riot is currently offering listeners of That Dan Band Show 15% off all purchases on LotRiot.com. Simply go to LotRiot.com and use the code DANBAND, one word, at checkout and you will receive 15% off everything you buy. But that's not all. Listeners of the podcast who use the code DANBAND will also receive an exclusive Lot Riot That Dan Band Show pin and sticker pack for free. 
So go to lotride.com right now to get 15% off your order and a free sticker and pin pack using the code DANBAND at checkout. See you in the lot. Something came to mind that I just think, I don't know if I've thought about this, but it's interesting because there's, you know, I, I went to school, I did my master's in English literature, right? So these conversations about canons and, you know, Western canons are very relevant across percussion literature and literature, literature, like novels. Um, and it comes to mind, like, there's that argument out there, like, oh, you know, all the old super white dudes with the, you know, powdered wigs on, like, they, you know, we need to include them because they're like the first to do it or like, the, and it's like, you know, Beethoven and, and Handel and all these really important figures. But like the reality too, is like, there's a, a real connection between um, written history and like the print culture and what we perceive as like our canon, because there is music outside the Western canon, um, world music, right? Eastern cultures, Africa, right? Tribal cultures where there isn't print culture taking storm around it. So it's like, oh, that history doesn't exist, but it actually does. The reality is because there isn't the rise of print culture as and, and written history alongside of it, it's like it doesn't exist. So like, is there, is there evidence? Is there like, how is that dealt with at least from, from your perspective with, with like world music or just, just that type of music that is outside of the Western canon? Because I feel like there's so much to it, but it's like, where does that live? Like, how does that get recorded? Like, is it as um, accessible to the academic even? Cause it feels like that is an important part of that, like sort of, you know, enlightenment Renaissance European moment is, there's also the print press and there's just the distribution of actual written things. And that really upholds the canon as the canon. Yeah. It's most of the time you can find this on YouTube. It's, it could be like some people who are going to go study that culture over in Africa or over in Asia. They're actually trying to immerse themselves in it as in they're doing it for their research and stuff. So you can find a lot of it on YouTube. It's a lot more on YouTube now than it was when I was growing up. So I didn't know, much about African culture, even though I myself am African-American, I'm just now starting to get privy to that. And it just takes, you know, one little spark. So for an example, so I said, I have a still pan, right? I got exposed to a still pan when I was about eight or nine years old through Encarta 98. I'm showing my age if you don't know that, but it used to be this little CD encyclopedia that you can put into your desktop. And there was this like, it was like this little thing where you can go and listen to music around the world. That was my first exposure to music around the world. And when I heard the steel pan, I heard steel drums. I was like, oh, this is cool. You know, I'm a little eight-year-old, nine-year-old and whatnot. <laughs> and then I get to, yeah, I was like, oh, this is awesome. And I kept playing it over and over again. And then I got to my master's and I was like, what's this? And it was like, it's a steel pan. I was like, I remember this from eighth grade, you know, when I was eight years old. And so now that's, you know, that's how I got attached to world percussion and whatnot. It's kind of harder for academia to get access to it because like you said, there's not a print culture. And when there is printed, it's very metric. It it has no groove. They're trying to fit something that's not meant to be put into a meter in mm. a meter. Mm-hmm. So like it, it's off putting for somebody who's taught by note to look at it and to read it and they are trying to understand it, but it's something that's passed down by word of mouth and by rote. So a lot of the culture that we have is posed is, uh, is passed down by, by mouth, like, like percussion, we're phonetic. So if you're trying to explain something, you'd be like, and they're like, Oh yeah, understand that. And then a wind player is just like, what is going on over here? Are y'all conjuring something like, (laughs) you know, but no, like we, uh, we're, that's that we have our own language within music. So in order for us to get this into academia, we, we just going to have to have more people exploring that and actually writing it down as best as they can, or maybe recording it and having like maybe a class of nothing but those recordings and learning things by rote because westernized music is very by the book by the page by the note and non-westernized music is by word of mouth by passing down through cultures i actually got to take a master class with maget fall and uh he's like this phenomenal 
uh, world drummer. And he's, I think he did like the drumming for like the Black Panther and for coming to a, the most recent coming to America. Yeah. And we, I managed to get three of my students to have a masterclass with them. And I said, it's different having a masterclass with him because he grew up with his elders from Nigeria to learn to play djembe and the talking drum and the junjun and the dundumba and things like that. And it felt different learning from him because he came from that culture as opposed to somebody who spent six weeks to, you know, five months over in Africa saying, yeah, I'm an expert on this. I'm just like, okay, like it felt more real. So maybe if getting these students exposed to somebody like coming over here and teaching a class or a seminar on, you know, African drumming or the the guitar or you know things like that so that way we understand those instruments we understand that culture and makes music it'll it'll make music you know a little bit better if we can understand those other cultures better well um it's super interesting because it's like you know and you're you're in this world i'm not in academia anymore but it's like things don't count unless they are written down and I think music is like very much on this wave forever. Um, at least when I say forever, I mean like from the inception of the main Western canon to now, it's like the written component is like, oh, this is how we distribute it. This is how we like reproduce it. Um, and there's like this very structured way that like you're handed a piece of music and you practice it and you come together in a rehearsal and you like play together and you're like being given comments about how good or bad it is or whatever, right? You're being taught, but like, so interesting when you talk about djembe and you talk about um that percussionist coming and and teaching because like literally that is communication like up to a certain point music was fundamentally meant to communicate um i wrote a paper um during grad school about the way that the 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 drum and the bugle were used during the war, right? Like the civil war, I think it was, I don't remember exactly what time period it was, but it was one of the American wars, revolutionary war, or the civil war. I think it was the civil war. Uh, no, I think it was a revolutionary war actually. Um, but it's like literally just about like the bugle and how the bugle works as like this signal. Right. And I think when you think about the djembe and hand drumming, it's so different, just fundamentally, like almost a different thing. When you think about like how a drum circle works, where it's like one person and they're just like, And then all of a sudden everyone's like, and we're just having this conversation that's totally live and there's nothing capturing it that's written down. Maybe you're recording the audio, but it's like much more psychological, but it's also more of a communication tool that's real and it's inclusive in that way. And when you think about a lot of the, when we talk canons, it's not just about like race or gender, even though that is obviously the theme that we can point to, but it's that when you make music only for people who can read that, and it's only adaptable through like reading and rehearsing and that kind of thing, you push out masses of people who could like oh yeah i'm gonna play djembe or i'm gonna like get interested in percussion because where you start as and i think you totally got to is like where you start as a percussionist you were in lessons piano lessons were like play the scale here is you know heart and soul here is like this cross buns and it's all based around these like very technical and set in stone ideas rather than like here is the way that this instrument is used to express and you can use it to have a conversation or like be playful. Like there's a way that there's like play is just stripped out of percussion. And you're just like, I'm like drumming and like doing this rather than like, let's create something live. And that's like what I guess jazz came up earlier is like jazz is a little bit more like that. Obviously it's, it's structured in its own way, but I love that it's never the same twice. So that like drum circle idea is like, just, it feels so different than playing you know some concerto where it's like you have to prepare and it's like super mapped out i feel like what you get from that as a listener or more so as like a participant in that music it feels like a completely different thing to me i don't know yeah yeah i agree like every i i i try to teach that to my students too when they're learning music i was like what you see on the page is just the recipe of what a composer has created yeah they you know they're giving you the key that you're supposed to play in, if there's a key, they're giving you the the 
the meters that you're supposed to get, the tempo and the notes. So that doesn't mean that you have to be real metric like da 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 okay cool so we as percussionists we can do that we can play Bach cello suite I'm referencing that because it's no it's all 16th notes we can be very metric with that but then I tell them I was like go back and look at yo yo ma watch him play it and understand how that instrument is we're taking a transcription of another instrument and putting it on ours they can't readily get down to that G so it sounds more like da 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 da. So it wasn't meant for you to play upper left to bottom bottom right at that tempo. You can push and pull. That means that every time you play this, it won't be played the same. So, and I think that's also the idea that you know, that was one thing you you brought up heart and soul. <laughs> my students keep playing that and they know I'm annoyed by that song because they keep doing it. So they do it all the time. And I look at them and be like, if you don't stop and they do it again. And then all of a sudden we have them play it and it's never the same. Every time they play it, it's always on a different instrument It's always in a different key. You know what, you know, and even though I'm, I'm quote unquote annoyed about it, I love them for it because I was like, I need y'all to, if y'all going to do it, do it differently. And so I have a student that's been playing it, but playing it differently. <laughs> now on purpose and you know that's what i want them to do because the same thing you know they're coming out of that marching band and they're thinking upper left bottom right upper left bottom right i'm like no this section play it and get comfortable and then all right so this piece was written by michael beard real really they're like yeah okay cool put who are you on the page so play it like you don't play it like michael beard i think somebody actually said said that like uh I think they auditioned for Michael Beard, something like that. And they were like, and they used his piece and they were like, and he was like, why did you play it that way? He was like, well I saw you play it like like that. And he was like, that's the stupidest thing you could have <laughs> you could have done. Like uh, don't play it like me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I, I try to get them to explore, you know, different ways of approaching their music rather than just what's written on the page. Even if that means transposing it. Oh, it's so, it's like, you never think about like the radical education that's in, in a percussion education, but I think you just kind of nailed it on the head about a student learning their own authenticity or their own autonomy, their own agency. And this is where some of the, you know, the, the work we do from a social standpoint, I'm not going to say social justice because that's a buzzword, but I think in socializing our students, right? When you're teaching a student percussion, it's not just A, B, C, D, E, F, G. It's not just paradiddles, right? What you're explaining is teaching the student to create a taste around themselves that gives them a point of view that's different than everyone else. So that then when they're in the world, they don't just conform to everything they see and do. And that's why Michael Burrett said that. I was like, don't do what you think you're supposed to do. Do what you believe you should be doing. And you're instilling them with this ability to be someone, I guess. Uh, it's not about like winning or being successful in some like metric driven way, but more so that they realize that they have a say in how they feel and how they think. Um, and that's, that's really cool. And I don't know, do you, do you experience that? Are you going in, you know, I don't feel like I really do that on purpose. So I'm not even going to ask you that, but do you feel like you've experienced that in seeing the students that you've taught over the years? Like kind of find themselves. Yeah. Just like kind of like gaining confidence. Yeah. Like, uh, when I started out here, I had uh, a couple of students that have gone through like two different, uh, teachers before me. So I kind of got them as, as their somewhat going through that teenager college life, I guess you can say. I guess it's the teen. I guess you're a fully adult when you graduate. But like they didn't know how to play four mallets. You know, they're juniors and they didn't know how to play four mallets. And within maybe three months, I had three students playing four mallets like really, really well. And I started to see them grow as percussionists They and teaching them how to practice efficiently. Like they were all about, you know, what's on the page. I need to play everything on the page in my, in, in my practice session. 
you know, no, break it down, go from section to section, especially how de- if you have a very demanding piece, you don't need to do the whole thing in one part. You're going to burn yourself out, you know. And one student in particular, you know, I started to actually hear him do more musicality. You know, I started to hear him in his music. I was like, good, you're sounding like John. You're not sounding like Ivan. And oh, I, and all the time they were coming to me like, he would be the one to be like, Miss Williams, I'm trying to be like you. I was like, don't be like me. I was like, I want you to be better than me. I want you to be you. So yeah, I've, I've, just, I've seen them, you know, grown. And I've tried to tell them, I'm like, don't wait for me to hand you music. You know, go on YouTube, go like you have a computer in your pocket. Ten years ago, we were afraid to even open up the web browser because we only are allotted 250 megabytes for Internet. (laughs) So, you know, you open up an app and that's it. You got to pay an extra fifty dollars. And the phone, you're blocking the phone line at home. They'd be like, remember that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like I I grew up in a dial up. I grew up on dial ups. So. Millennials, you know, we we went through that, but now this generation and beyond, you come out the womb with a data plan. Yeah. You know, you already have unlimited data when you come yeah. out. So I like go on here, type in, you know, marimba solo, type in snare drum solo, type in drum set solo, find something that catches your ear. That's what I did as a as a undergrad. I was on my computer, and that's how I discovered a lot of music. That's how I discovered a lot of people. You know, if you don't go out and do your own research and you wait for your own teacher, you're never going to find yourself. You're not going to find your niche. That's how I found out that I'm really good at steel pan after being really good at keyboards for so long. You know, I'm still not that good on snare drum, but I, it's not that I, I don't gravitate to it. That's where we go with that. I can teach it. I'm pretty proficient in it, but I'd gravitate to the more melodic sound and timpani. You know, I've gotten better at that too. So I, as an educator, am still finding myself. You never stop learning. So I tell them, I was like, you need to do your own research because however can you, how can you grow if you're not looking up what you want to do? I love it. I totally agree. So um, one, I mean, what about steel pan do you enjoy? And two, I mean, I feel like that's a really, really hard instrument to become proficient at because it's so sensitive, right? You're using a really hard metal mallet. It's on metal. It's one of those things, it's almost to me like a clarinet where like a clarinet at its best is like the most amazing sound ever, but also like everyone who's not going to clarinet, but plays clarinet, it's just like intolerable. I feel like steel pan is, is somewhat like that. So like what, what drew you there? I mean, it sounds like some of it is just like childhood and like the flavor. Is it like the styles of music that incorporate it really well? Is it, um, the way that the drums are laid out? Like what, how did you kind of learn that that was your new uh, I guess by pathway. Yeah. Uh, so like I said, it started when I was younger, when I listened to that steel band being played. And when I got to my master's, you know, I'd never been actually near a steel pan, like near a steel drum or, you know, it's, or a steel band or anything of that matter. And I actually looked at it and I was like, okay, I could learn this. And so I started taking the beginning uh, steel band class. And that's when I realized, okay, this is a little bit fun to play it is a very sensitive instrument um it's it depends on the thickness of the rubber that you have on the ends of your mallet so it's, ru- it it's a rubber mallet head yes yeah, so it's a it's a rubber tip mallet the the stick of the of the the mallet and whatnot can either be wood this is wood they could be metal or i prefer carbon fiber because they're they're lighter um these tend to be a little clunky for me and i learned that actually from andy akio about using carbon fiber because that's what he uses. And when I switched to carbon fiber, I was like, oh my God, this is so much better. I can get around the the pan a little bit easier, a little bit lighter. Um, And so like, that's where I learned. And also I think I got more into steel pan when I heard Akio's synesthesia suite, which is what my dissertation is on. And so um, I heard Kaya Nai, which was, it's crimson, it's foreign crimson, it's for prepared steel pan. And what's interesting about it was it's not play. You you don't play it the same way every time. So that kind of goes back to the whole jazz thing. That's kind of like one thing that he he wanted to create like a jazz head for things like that. And on the bottom four notes, you have magnets or, you know, poster putty that lowers the pitch by a half tone. So, yeah. So instead of C, you're playing B natural. Instead of G, you're playing F sharp. Instead of D, you're playing C sharp. And instead of A, you're playing C sharp. And then you're using a cardboard tube, like from the dry cleaners. 
like the little dry cleaner hanger, you're using that in, in your in your right hand and your left hand, you have a chopstick. And so, yeah. And what's interesting about it is the right hand has a has an ostinato. If you play in a steel pan uh, part, it has an ostinato that's written in 3116. So 3116 notes. And the left hand plays a uh, quarter note. So. It gets off every, like every every rotation. So you have to play the asinato four times before both hands line back up at the first note. So when I heard that, I was like, yep, I'm buying a steel pan. And literally a few months later, I bought a steel pan. <laughs> so it's not with me at the moment. You know, it's it's packed up at my house, but um, I had it shipped in from Trinidad. So and yeah, so that's when I realized that I was really serious about it when I that was like my first real serious instrument purchase and so that's why i stress to my students i was like you know whether it's in your master's if you go to grad school or in your undergrad find your niche and whatever you're you know really going to go for that's where you need to put your money in yeah i especially um you know i did a terminal master's and then i did a year of a phd but i think my issue with that was i i wasn't specialized i mean i was doing english so it was like i just didn't really know but it sounds like you you were smart. You got to that point. And you're like, I need to go in this direction because you do have to specialize. The great thing about being percussionist, though, is our specialization is so broad. Even even in that, it's like you have to still like when you audition at any orchestra, I'm sure you have to play timpani, snare drum and marimba at, at the least. Right. So it's like you've 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 now found this entry point and still pan is just like the dopest and most Diff honestly for me it just seems super difficult. Where do you where's your fulcrum at on that small mallet? Is it like back? Is it up high? Like where do you hold it? Like right here. Like almost half. Just like like about about half. You know, this is that's me personally. Everybody's different, and like I, I tell my students that too when they're learning uh different grips, whether it's you know German or French grip, or they're learning you know a different format of grip. Everybody's hands different, just like everybody's embouchure when they're playing. Our hands are our embouchure. You know, and that clicks in percussion methods, you know, when students are just like, I don't understand. It's like, this is our embouchure. But, you know, it's it, I kind of very light, very dainty. And then, of course, like if I do four mallets, you know, it's things like that. But it you find your way to maneuver around the pan. Some people like to play like into the pan. Some people like to play up on the pan. Um, it also depends on what pan you're playing. I have a Sealy tenor pan and the way that it's uh, uh, arranged is it's arranged in a circle of fifths. So if you're going from uh, uh, counterclockwise around the pan, you know, C, G, D, A, E, and so forth. So all the naturals is on one side, all the, the accidentals on the other side. You know, I hate double tenors. I refuse to play double tenors because it does not line up whatsoever. You could play a scale on there and four notes can be on one hand and two can be on the other. So, yeah, it's not really that. I love playing double seconds. That's actually my next instrument purchase that I'm looking forward to. Um I've played cellos and I played basses before too, but I do prefer to play a C lead and a, a, a double seconds. I've looked at a D lead before, but I don't particularly like them. They're the high, they're called the high leads because they start on D4 and go up from that, from there, as opposed to where the C lead starts on C4, middle C and go up from there. You have more range on a C lead than you do on a, on a D lead. And you're saying just in terms of like the comfort of how you move around, it just feels more comfortable when it's like split a certain way versus it's like kind of offset. One side is too heavy on the accidentals. And the other side is too heavy on the natural keys. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what double tenors, like one could be real heavy on, you know, one part of the scale or one part of the accidentals and the other one's not. But um, C lead is very symmetrical since all of your, uh, all your uh, naturals are on one side and all of your accidentals on the other. And it's, it's like a spot, it's literally spider web that I forget. I think it was Spree, was it Williams? Spree Williams? It was one of them. Uh, I can't not remember the name the same. It could have been Anthony, Tony, but um, came up with the spider web. So it goes up like a spider web for your accidental. So you kind of go in, in that kind of manner. And so that's how you understand how to do your chromatic. So everybody's different in how they learn it. When I first learned it, they wrote with Sharpie on the notes so we know what note we're playing. But when I got my pen, I said, I wasn't going to do that. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to learn this 
note just by looking at it, know like, okay, that's a G sharp. And here's my E. Like, that's all I, I wanted to do. I want to be able to get around the pan without really knowing. And my pan is really bright compared to one that's bored. And I do miss a board. A board pan has holes in it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that makes it a little bit darker. My pan doesn't have that. It's just, you know, set like it is. So it's a very bright pan. And I actually love it. You know, I call him Lord Kitchener <laughs> after my favorite, after my favorite cl- uh, uh, cl- uh, Calypsonian. Okay. Um, my favorite piece is Pan in A Minor by Lord Kitchener. So I've, I've named him Lord Kitchener. <laughs> and uh, so these pans, are they, are they hand hammered? Like this, if you're going to, from Trinidad, I'm imagining this is like custom and someone is like a craftsman who's like making it, which makes it like a million times cooler. Yeah. So there are some places that use a machine to like maybe get the the basics, the fundamental uh, hammering out. But yeah, typically what they do is they take an oil drum. So like the oil drums you see, it's all rusted in the junkyard and whatnot. They'll get those. Uh, they'll import those and they'll cut them depending on what instrument you want to do. Um, they'll keep them intact if they're the base pans. But if they're, you know, anything that's uh, lighter in the test, higher in the testator, they're going to cut it further down. Yep. And then they hammer it. Uh, a C lead is 11 inches deep. And so they have a dome on the bottom. And then they have to go in and find out where the fundamental pitches are. And then they'll hammer that in. And it's a process of hammering the inside and the outside using a strobe tuner. To, to do that, you know, it's, it's, it's a very tedious process. Um, and I commend anybody that knows how to make, uh, and tune, I do need to have mine tuned. So, um, but yeah, it just requires a lot of hammers and a strobe tuner. When they tune it, are they just going back in and they're just hammering it? Yeah. So what they do is they'll hammer it and then they'll take like a mallet, like an actual like note like this yeah. and they'll hit it. And there's a strobe tuner so that way they can see all the harmonics and in there so that way they know, okay, this is where it's perfect. This is where middle C is. We're good. And then also every pan is different too. So like the pans have seams in them and sometimes where, you know, like your C or your G or whatever can line up differently. So my pan will line up differently from somebody else's C lead pan just because of how it's been made and what drum it came from. It's so cool. I bet that is just dope as a piece to like have, even if you don't play it, it's just like such an amazing work of art. And it's just like that whole thing, like handcrafted instruments. Like I'm not even going to ask you how much you pay for that. Cause that's like not appropriate, but like, I just feel like that's such a cool piece. Like that's such a cool thing to have. Like, you know, Having a snare drum that like, you know, I'm a pearl artist or whatever. And like having a pearl snare drum, like I love pearl. Like it's amazing. That is still a really big company. Like you're talking about some person who has like probably spent their life doing this, like their hands, the oil of their hands and like just all that work going into it. And like, there's something with that, with like the sound and how that sound is so tangible and so specific to like the air like that is a that's a geographic sound when you hear a steel pan you're like that's caribbean you know like i guess that's what i would say i'm not like an expert like you but i'd be like this is a certain vibe there's a certain like place that it pulls you and it's like that is so unique i feel like not every instrument you're like that draws you to a location and then there's like that cultural thing now within it it's like if you are playing steel pan you have to learn about the culture that it comes out of or you will disrespect it like that instrument it requires like actual study not just playing but like understanding like the history of it yeah like the history is is it came out of pretty much you know, slaves being banned from playing their drums, which was, like you said, a form of communication. Yeah. Percussion is a form of communication. Clapping and stomping was the original. As a child, you stomp to let people know that I'm upset. So, so yeah, like, you know, the government, you know, banned their drums. Like, you know, we think you're going to start riding. This is, you know, in a nutshell, what, what the history of We think you're about to start riding. You're about to start communicating and overthrow us. So nobody can drum. Okay, well, we're going to get this bamboo and we're going to cut them. We're going to start hitting them. We're going to slap them on the ground and whatnot. But we're also going to shave them so we can stab the other band when we lose. <laughs> so, okay, no, for real, that, that's literally what happened. And they were like, okay, well, you're killing each other oh, no. and you're posing a threat. So we're going to ban that too. They still had underground tambu bamboo is what it's called, tambu bamboo bands. 
And then what happened was, you know, usually when they're in the streets and they're stomping and they're marching and whatnot, the bamboo breaks or the stick break, they pick up a bottle and pick up a biscuit tin, which is like a bis- like a like a tin can yeah. and whatnot, paint can. And somebody started hammering one of them one time. It was like, okay, I like the sound of that. You actually created notes. Somebody found an oil drum and created it. And then, you know, they banned Tambu Bamboo. And then the government was like, we're about to ban. You know what? You're bringing in us money. So we're going to keep you having, you know, playing the steel bands. Like to the point where Exxon actually sponsored a steel band. You know, steel pan. Is the steel pan is the only acoustical instrument created in the 20th century. So yeah, it's the only acoustical instrument that's been created in the 20th century. So it's it's a fairly new, a fairly new uh instrument. So it's amazing how like how we got there. And in a nutshell, that's literally what happened, you know. And it's you do have to understand the culture. You know, and it's it's like the I think it is the the instrument of Trinidad and and uh, Tobago. It is the instrument over there, like the national instrument, because that's where it came from. And, you know, you got Panorama, you got Blackarama, you know, you got all these different things. You got Carnival. And one of my dreams one is on my bucket list is to go to Trinidad to go to Carnival, whether I'm playing in Panorama or just to, you know, go to immerse myself in the culture. So. It's 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 awesome to for me to have learned that uh, that instrument, you know, and I, you know, tell my students, this is how you find out, you know, what you're really good at. You listen to something, you learn it and you do it. And the the obsession over where it comes from is it has to inform like I feel like you are not only a percussionist, but you have to be a historian, you know, and that's how I felt about, you know, being a snare drummer in, in DCI or whatever. Like I didn't just become passionate about the instrument and the sound, I became passionate about the people who had brought it to its level and the writers and the designers and the players and the equipment and all that. Like, it's such a holistic thing um, that, that draws you in. It's, it's like a personality trait. You know, I bet that when you collaborate with other steel pan players, y'all understand each other on a level that other percussionists don't because you deal with these random, Oh, it's getting hot in here. All right. Our, our instruments are going flat, like, or whichever direction it goes in, like just these funny little quirks about the instrument that they create a community around it. And I'm sure that you've experienced some just connections in your network because you're like, I'm a steel pan person. I'm going to, I'm going to go in this direction. And then people are like, Hey, like, yo, I see you over there. And like, that's what I do. Yeah. It's, it's kind of few in between, you know, it's kind of hard to network, especially like, uh, when you're in an area where still bands aren't that often, you know, shown, but you know, there is like some still bands here in Alabama. Um, I think UNA has one. Uh, I think Troy has one, if I'm not mistaken, but, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to like, yeah, let's get together. You know, I did meet one at AMEA. She's like, yeah, I got one from my grandmother's house. We need to get together. I was like, cool. You know, some people have these pans and they don't know what they are. You know, they just keep them because I know it's an instrument. I know my, grandparents or my parents had one but I don't know how to take care of it so they you know they end up either being sold or they just keep them in their attic collecting dust until somebody understands what they are but you know it's it's amazing like whenever I go somewhere and I'll be like is that a still pan I gravitate towards it you know so that's just that's just me like you know I, I love the instrument I love the culture I love the music that's being uh made for it and you know I just hope that we can you know bring more of that that culture to other schools and other, other students too. I'm already like, I'm just going through a Rolodex of also like hip hop songs that use steel pan. Cause that actually is like, I'm a mother PIM. I feel like that has steel pan in it. Like there's, that's like a heavily used sound. People don't know like what that sound is, but it just like creates the identity of the music because one, it's so tactile, like hearing the mallet hit the steel drum. It's like, yeah, you feel the presence of that. And then just that geographical part of it. And when you use it in music, it's like, it gives it this like flavor that's like different, which is just super cool. Yeah, yeah, I I like I love it. So even like you said, when I'm listening to music, I'd be like, "Huh, they sample a steel pan, yeah. cool." You know, and then I actually kind of think, like, do they know that they're playing a steel pan? You know, that's because you know it's it's a synthetic version of it. You know, it's a synthesized steel pan. It probably says steel pan on there, but I you know sometimes I wonder if they you know research the instruments that they're using, regardless if it's a steel pan or a timpani. 
I think the best people, I think the best people definitely know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got to think the best producers know. And then some people are just hitting a button, but I think a lot of those choices are really, really related to the message they're trying to send. Like you can't, you can't just, if you're going to be that high level musician, you can't just make choices compulsively because someone's going to call your ass out. Like you are appropriating this or you are misusing this. Like there's so many smart people out there. It's just, I, I, I'd hope that people do their due diligence in, in making those choices. Um, but, uh, Jessica, this has been an absolute blast. I am so glad we got to just connect and I got to learn so much about what you're passionate about. And it's just, there's so much overlap with the things that I do that it's just, I, I feel, uh, I feel less like a, a dummy snare drummer and more like a percussionist when I talk to people like you, because <laughs> I'm like, wow, everything you're saying is like, so it's so relative to what I do in a good way. So, um, where can people find you on social media? Do you have a website? Let them know where they can, uh, follow you and just see what's going on. Yeah. Like on Facebook, uh, I'm Jessica Marimba music Williams, because there's a lot of Jessica Williamses out there. Um, on Instagram, I am at Dolce Marimba D O L C E M A R I M B A. Um, and through that, through my Instagram page, there will be a link to my website, which is www.jessicawms.com. So that's Jessica WMS.com. I'm trying to get it more updated and, and whatnot, but you know, with I've been in dissertation brain these last few weeks, that has been kind of hard to even get out the bed sometimes you know but you know that's where they can find me i'm mostly active on my instagram and uh you know they can find out about what i do what i teach in my studios just by going through my instagram a lot because i'll be posting a lot on there awesome this has been so much fun thank you everyone for stopping by listening make sure you subscribe make sure you follow us at that damn band show on instagram as well and for everyone i will see you next time peace out